Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, y'all, before we get into today's conversation, we want to take a quick minute to ask you a small favor that'll make a big difference for our podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes. The new iOS has made it easier than ever to leave feedback for our podcast. All you do is go to your library in the podcast app, click on the Kindreds icon, and scroll to the bottom of the screen where it says Write a Review. You can give us a star rating and leave a brief comment about why you love Kindreds. Reviews are important because they help new listeners find our show. Thanks so much. All right, Ashley, let's get into it. How are you today? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited because we left folks in a bit of suspense last time. So we're going to deal with that in just a second. Um, But today we're continuing our conversation from last episode, episode 11, um, about bodies. But we're focusing this episode on the three P's, pregnancy, parenting, and paid family leave. And like I mentioned, if you listened to our last episode, you may remember that we left you all with a little bit of a cliffhanger because we shared that one of us has a big announcement to make. Ashley, should we give the people what they want? I guess we should. So, um, I am almost seven months pregnant. Yay! (laughs) Yay! (laughs) That conversation we had way back earlier this year, um, I think it was somewhere around episode three, I was asking all of those questions about having kids because my husband and I were right on the verge of being ready to go for it, and I was trying to reassure myself a little bit that we were making the right decision. So yeah, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty amazing and huge, and our lives are about to change in a big way. But um, yeah, I'm due sometime next February. And um, that's, <laughs> yep, that's my announcement. <laughs> Yay. Well, now Yay. everybody, now everybody knows, which is I've known for a long time. So I'm excited that this is now news that we can share with our listeners. And going yeah. back to that episode, I think you're right. It was the question of kids episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really sympathize with you in that moment because... I remember what it was like to try to make a big decision like that, but I'm really excited that y'all decided to go for it and that everything has gone pretty well so far. And now that we get to talk about it. Yay. Our favorite thing. Yeah. So (laughs) I want to thank you first for being open to having this conversation while you're right smack in the middle of pregnancy, because it would it would have been fine if you didn't want to, but I'm glad that you want to. So if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you, what has your experience of being pregnant been like so far? Hmm. Well, I have a few thoughts that I don't mind sharing. (laughs) Just a few. Um, First of all, this has been a relatively easy pregnancy, uh, which has been really awesome. And I'm really thankful for that. No um, serious health issues or complications. And so far, everything is going well and according to schedule. So I feel very lucky in that regard, um, physically. I will say, though, that emotionally being pregnant is a lot harder than I thought it would be. I was completely unprepared for the impact that all these pregnancy hormones would have on my mental well-being. I don't know if that's something you experienced, Mm, but... Yeah, definitely. I really... um, didn't expect that. And combined with the fact that so much about pregnancy and the future, having kids is just unknowable and like completely 
outside of your control, it's just really hard to prepare um, or even like know how to begin to prepare for all the change that's about to happen, which is kind of hard because I don't know if folks with anxiety can relate to this, but um, having strategies to like plan and like ease your mind about about unknown is is really an important part for me of controlling my anxiety. And so just having to sort of roll with it all has been um, unsettling. And, you know, we talked a couple uh, episodes ago about um, exploring mental health options and, you know, utilizing that when you need to. And pregnancy has definitely been something that's prompted me to, to talk to um, a therapist just about all of the, like, crazy questions and unknowns and fears and stuff and um, get all of that out of my head, which has been really helpful. And I think the thing I'm having the hardest time with is just feeling on display all the time. Mm -hmm. I waited a long time to tell people I'm pregnant. I mean, I'm almost seven months now before we're talking about it at all on the podcast. Um, And that's been kind of deliberate. I've just been, this has been kind of a private thing um, for me. We didn't make any big announcements or reveals on social media. And um, I just have been really uncomfortable with my body being the focus of so much attention. Um, I don't really like people touching my belly without asking. And I don't like feeling like people can just look at me and think they know something about me and my health. Um, You know, we talked about that a lot on the last last episode about weight and wellness and stuff. Um, Being visibly overweight or visibly pregnant kind of opens the door for unsolicited judgments and comments and (laughs) advice Mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah, like for sure. It's just, I don't know that it, it's, it's really hard. Um, and something, I don't know if you experienced this, but something that's just been like the icing on the cake for me is shopping for maternity clothes. It is rough. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It's rough. <laughs> I have not enjoyed it. I don't like shopping in general. So, mm-hmm. um, this experience has just been like, I thought I could just like, get away with wearing my clothes as long as possible and like maybe going up a size and then that just uh that only lasts a little while and I feel a lot of empathy for folks that don't fit the narrow range of sizes that are sold in stores um here where I live there's only a couple of stores that even sell maternity clothes and they're more expensive than regular clothes the selection is way more limited um it's just really (laughs) It's just been really difficult. Um, I was surprised by how quickly my clothes didn't fit, um, even though I wasn't like, quote unquote, showing for a while. And so I was just wearing my clothes and getting like really uncomfortable. They were all, my clothes were always really tight. And um, it got to where I was just exhausted, like thinking about getting dressed was just exhausting. Um, Not to mention if there was like work-related things or like a nice Mm -hmm. evening out that I wanted to look nice for. I just felt like all my clothes were super frumpy and didn't fit right. And so eventually I broke down and started buying like real maternity clothes. And then a friend gave me a big box of her hand-me-downs and I bought a few like cute things new. And so now I don't have that added stress of trying to dress a body that doesn't feel like mine. (laughs) Um, And that has been... It's weird how much of a difference that's made to my, like, just my mental well-being, like, my day-to-day. I don't know if that's something you experienced or if you went through that, but ugh. I really can relate to that and remember what that felt like. And I think it's in part the depictions of pregnancy that we see. We think about 
the woman about to give birth. We don't think about that early stage where you're kind of not really visibly pregnant, but maybe you look a little thicker around your middle than you're used to. It's a really odd way of how, and everybody's body adjusts differently to pregnancy for sure. And I remember the maternity clothes and that that in-between stage of pre-pregnancy stuff didn't fit the way I wanted it to, but a lot of maternity stuff was too big. Or didn't fit right in the belly because, you know, there's a lot of extra fabric there. Um, and I remember in particular one speaking gig I had that was right around maybe the five-month mark when I tried every single piece of work clothes I had and I finally found, like, one outfit that would fit me. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that yep. was kind of the turning that. point. But, yeah, you just the frustration of, like, I should be able to wear my own clothing. Like, why... What's going on? Um, so we're lucky in that you and I are based at home and can wear yoga pants a lot of the time. That definitely helps. Yes, <laughs> um, for sure. But beyond that, I mean, what you said at the beginning about just the emotional adjustment to being pregnant and what that feels like. I had a very complex relationship with being pregnant, too. A lot of different feelings about it. I was so mixed up about what I felt about it that, like you, I, I did go to therapy, which um, I talked about in our episode Destigmatizing mental health, which is episode 10. And a lot of it had to do with how I felt in my body, just like you were talking about, which most of the time wasn't very good. Um, and I had this interesting encounter with my therapist early on when we were doing just basic intake. And I told her I wasn't sure how I felt about being pregnant. And, and she said, so it wasn't a planned pregnancy. And I said, oh, no, it was planned. I... <laughs> I I wanted to get pregnant, but now that I am pregnant, I'm not I'm not so sure what to make of all these feelings that I'm having. Yeah, um, because like you said, without having experienced having experienced being pregnant, you don't know what it's going to feel like, and you don't know what to expect. And mm-hmm. it's a tough situation to, on the one hand, like want it intellectually or for your future, but then the experience of it day to day doesn't match up with what you thought or what you hoped for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was also really uneducated about pregnancy, which is a hard thing for me to admit as a reproductive health advocate. (laughs) But I I mean, I really didn't have any education at all about pregnancy or what to expect in terms of how my body was going to change. And, um, you know, I didn't know that typically in a first pregnancy, there's really not a visible baby bump for a long time, like for months. Yeah. And I don't know if you have felt this way, but I kind of vacillated between wanting to look visibly pregnant and not wanting to look pregnant, depending on the day and the yeah. situation I was in. Yeah, and- I understand. Yeah, I know that feeling. And, like, I even have had a lot of people, like, almost, like, irritated with me for not showing yet. Oh, yeah. They get annoyed. Like, strangers yes. will get annoyed. It's so weird. Like, give you side eye like you're lying when you say you're pregnant. And they're like, well, how far along are you? And you're like, five months. And they're like, mm, yeah, right. I mean, that is so weird. <laughs> I know. Again, it goes back to that general lack of education about what, especially what first time pregnancy yeah. looks like. It just, it doesn't, you're not visibly pregnant for a really long time. Like, at least for me until that third trimester, really. Yeah, same. That's about how it's been for me, too. And so related to that, I remember really early on in my pregnancy, like eight eight weeks maybe, I was at this quarterly grantee meeting that I had to go to in D.C. Um, every quarter. 
And one of our colleagues was very visibly pregnant by this time. And like I said, I was just early on and I had my ginger ale. That was really the only telltale sign that I was pregnant. And I remember thinking, okay, so next quarter will be three months and I'll have this real bump to show. And of course I didn't to go back to our previous point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, part of me kind of liked that I didn't look pregnant for a while because it made me feel like my body was still my own. Um, Yeah. So going back, you know, like... There was that whole point where I didn't really look pregnant, but I looked fatter than I was before. And that drove me bananas. Like, I just wanted it to be obvious that I wasn't just getting gaining weight that I was that I was pregnant. Um, and I had, like, really weird physical things that happened to me. I don't know if that's happened to you, but I had, like, constant rib pain on one side for the last few months. Just, like, stabbing constant pain on one side. Which Fun. was really, it's like really bizarre. <laughs> um, just something I didn't know to expect. Um, and I think related to other conversations we've, we've had about being in a body, it's difficult already to feel at home in your body, no matter yeah. what you look like. Mm-hmm. With all the toxic messages we get about being, you know, we need to be better than we are. Um, but it's even harder to feel at home in your body when it's occupied by a fetus that's doing all kinds of weird things to you that make yeah. you feel out of sorts. And it's really something that's been really like complicated for me to just wrap my head around is this, you know, we're the messages we get, we're constantly told to be as thin as possible, as as small as possible. And then when you're pregnant, you it's like this time when you're expected to gain weight, you have to gain weight, but then there's all this pressure of like, but not too much. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to lose it really quickly, um, afterward. And it's just the like conflicting messages around all of this is, I don't know. It's, I'll, I think I'll just be glad when this phase is, is over. <laughs> really? I just, it's been a really uncomfortable place for me to be physically and emotionally and like socially like let's just I'll be I'll be glad um I'm not maybe one of those people that uh says you know they really love being pregnant like eh, it's not the worst thing but I'll be glad when it's over I think right and it's temporary and it's a means yeah. to an end so yeah people who love being pregnant I mean that's in my view it's a little sad because there's a limitation on how much of your life you can be pregnant that's true it has to end (laughs) thankfully (laughs) yeah my mom is one that says she just loved being pregnant and um I kind of heard that my whole life growing up and sort of expected that maybe a little bit and um it's been just a different experience for me so I don't know it's also this whole thing has just made me really like aware that every pregnant person's experience is different and that they're all real and valid and it's okay you know it's all it's all okay I also I mean I don't want to invalidate any person's experience but I also think time really does help to Uh add some (laughs) rose-colored glasses to an experience I mean I could tell you about my birth experience now over three years ago in a much different light. Luckily, I, and if this is something you want to do, I would encourage you. I wrote, I wrote it down. Like I wrote down exactly what happened within a week of her being born because the mind has a way of forgetting about all kinds of details, but especially when there's like pain or fear involved. And so I'm glad I have that record because now I'm like, oh, that wasn't so bad. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's how we're able to populate our species, I think, is that amnesia right. effect that we get after we just forget what it was like. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But a couple of things I was thinking about that helped me feel a bit more connected to my body when I was pregnant was, well, two things. So one was I got weekly massages that my insurance paid for because uh, it was therapeutic and that was amazing. And then um, prenatal yoga, uh, which was really good because I was in this community of women who are all going through, most of them are first time moms. And they were all going through the same thing and kind of got to see people's bodies change over time. And that is really what established a yoga practice for me. And I still practice yoga now. That's awesome. I'm kind of, I'm jealous of both of those things. Uh, Number one, I am jealous that your insurance paid for massages. Lucky. (laughs) That is incredible. Um, I'm also jealous that you had uh, a whole prenatal yoga class. So my studio, I'm just one of like a couple of pregnant folks and there's not enough people to make up a whole class. So um, I've actually had to cut way back on the yoga uh, because there aren't really um, a lot of classes that are that are uh, gentle enough for this phase of my pregnancy. Um, so it's been, I've actually kind of missed that. Um, and I, I wish I had that community, but going back to the, um, insurance, uh, something that my husband and I have had to come to terms with recently is that our insurance is not really great. Um, when it comes to childbirth, we have one of those high deductible, high out of pocket max, plans that come with an HSA, mm-hmm. which up until this point has not been that big of a deal because we, our premiums are low and we are both pretty fit and, you know, we don't need to go to the doctor very often. And so it's really worked for us. And we knew a couple of years ago that we would start putting money in the HSA, um, that we were going to need it for childbirth, but it was, <laughs> it was a, a pretty big shock when we found out just exactly how much all this is going to mm. cost. Um, we are lucky that we have an OB uh, that is willing to kind of work with us on a payment structure. So it's, it's doable, but it's going to be, um, it's going to be rough. (laughs) So we, um, it just makes me think about how different insurance is like depending on where you live and who your employer is and what state you're in and what hospitals and access to care you have. And I mean, it's just, it varies so much. Um, did you ever see that? There was a YouTube video um, that went around, I think it was last year about, it was a, a guy who was trying to like find out how much it was going to cost for him and his wife to have a baby. And he like called the insurance and they said, well, you can't, you know, we can't tell you how much it's going to cost. You just have to have the baby and then you, it costs what it costs. And he called like all these hospitals in his area and he was like never able to get any like concrete numbers. It was going to cost anywhere from ten to $20,000. Like that's that's somewhere in that neighborhood. And he it like showed him just like sitting on hold with billing departments. And they were all like, why are you calling now? She hasn't had the baby yet. And he's like, I'm just trying to find right. out so I know how to prepare. Yeah, and that's true of most medical procedures. Like they don't tell you yeah. how much a hospitalization is going to cost or anything. And like that is really messed up and bizarre that you just yeah. – it's already an anxiety-provoking thing to need any kind of medical procedure. But then to not know how much you're going to have to pay for it. Yeah. So this whole idea that we're able to shop around for the best health care is total garbage because you can't actually find out how much anything is going to cost you till after you have it. And um, I will f- – I'm going to find that video and put it in the show notes because it's really fascinating and I think it's very revealing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's just an aspect of this that's added, like, another another level of just, like – 
the cost of childbirth and what what that's going to do for us financially. Yeah, that's really hard. And we're lucky that we're in this triangle of North Carolina where we've got just top-notch healthcare providers and also a lot of different kinds of providers. And we were able to use a birth center for my prenatal care and for That's my awesome. birth. Yeah. Um, it was a really good experience. And we didn't choose it because of the expense, but it was a really nice bonus that I think total for prenatal care and for the birth and aftercare was $1,500 total for the whole thing. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, it's a birth center is not a great fit for everybody. And there are, are women who can't use it for a lot of different reasons. Um, if you have high risk factors or if you want an epidural, mm-hmm. to be frank, I mean, you're not going to get an epidural at a birth center. But um, mm-hmm. I wish more families could actually make some choices about how and where they give birth and they don't have to, they only, I mean, it sounds like maybe you only have a few options available to you. So you don't, really have the ability to yep. like make the decision you would want to in an ideal situation. Yeah, we I it's hospitals. That's how you have um kids around here or you have them at home. Um that's not really an option that we wanted to go with. We don't there's not an actual like midwife staff birth center in the state of Mississippi. Wow. Um as far as I'm aware. So there's not a licensing I I don't believe so there's certified nurse midwives, but then there's not a licensing procedure for other midwives. Um, and so there's, uh, it's just really hazy, like what's available and then how well-trained folks are and, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so we're going with a hospital cause that's really like, that's the best, uh, the best kind of care we know we can get, um, where we live. And it's also one of the most expensive ways to have a baby. <laughs> so it's just, it, it's hard and having kids is already expensive. And I feel like we hear about it a lot in the media, you know, that kids are expensive and they talk about like diapers and toys and clothes and stuff. And that stuff can really add up. Yes. But right now we're also looking at the cost of childcare, which um, can also be astronomical for folks. I read this article in time magazine last year that the majority of American households spend 10% or more of their income on childcare and a fifth of families spend a quarter of their income on childcare every year. That is bananas. Yep. We and, definitely fit in those in those percentages for what we pay. Yeah, it's um it's just it's a burden. It is a huge burden. And so you've got the cost of childcare and then healthcare on top of that for once your kid is born and needs, you know, pediatrician and stuff. And then healthcare for the the whole family and then childcare. You've got all that to consider, but then there's also the question of parental leave because what we're finding is that can really impact finances too. And the question of whether like one or both parents can stay home and for how long and who's going to go back to work, one or both, and will you have a job to come back to if you take leave? All of those things affect a family's income and expenses. And so I want to talk a little bit more about family leave because I know this is something you have some experience with and have written about. So can you talk a little about family leave? Absolutely. This is a huge topic that I'm sure we will revisit again along with affordable child care because those things definitely go hand in hand. Some of you might know that the United States is the only advanced country in the world with no national paid family leave policy. 
Mm-hmm. Let that sink in for a minute. The only one. Mm-hmm. We do have the Family Medical Leave Act or FMLA that ensures employees won't lose their job if you take time off to care for a family member, but it's not paid. And it only lasts, I think, 12 weeks. And it only legally impacts yep. people who work for companies with at least 50 people. So if you work for yep. yourself, if you work for a small company or a small organization, FMLA might not protect you. Yeah, and I think you have to have worked at that company for a year. That's true. And I think you have to be salaried. I don't know about that. We'll have to look that up. Possibly. I don't know if part-time workers would be covered. Um, So there's a lot of gaps, and it's unpaid. So uh, think about Mm -hmm. the time in your life when you've got the huge health care expenses and you have pending uh, child care expenses coming up. So now you're expected to take unpaid time off. It just doesn't make financial sense. It doesn't make emotional sense or physical sense. So paid family leave is really rare in the United States. And it's a huge justice issue for everybody. Because even if you never, ever have a baby, you were once a baby yourself. Right. (laughs) You know, so was everybody else. And hopefully you got the nurturing care that you deserved in infancy and that your birth Mm -hmm. mother got some time to recover from the trauma that is childbirth. Right. But it's likely that your parents didn't get much time off, if any time off. And it's possible that your mother's job wasn't even legally protected at the time, depending on when you were born. Yeah. Instituting a national paid family leave policy is a protection that, you know, benefits all of us. Um, We want to have Mm -hmm. a healthy population, hopefully, And uh, most of us, not all of us, but most of us want women to stay in the workforce. That's good for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we also want to resist our workaholic culture that doesn't value workers as whole human beings with multifaceted lives. Yeah. It's crazy that this stuff that we're saying feels so radical. I know. (laughs) It's it's not. It's obvious. I know. It should be obvious, but it feels like this radical concept. I know. I mean, it feels... It feels silly to even say it out loud, but corporate culture in general does not value these things. Right. You know, the ideal worker is one always who is always available no matter what. Mm-hmm. And we've got to change mm-hmm. our culture around that. That's a much bigger issue. But back to paid family leave. I connected with a woman named Jessica Shortle, and she wrote a book called Work Pump Repeat, the new mom survival guide to breastfeeding and going back to work, which I will link to in the show notes. Maybe I'll buy you a copy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) And she's a big advocate for paid family leave. She did a TED Talk on this very issue called The U.S. Needs Paid Family Leave for the Sake of Its Future. I saw that. It's great. It's really good. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So this is a quote from that TED Talk. She says, Childbirth is and always will be an enormous psychological event. Statistically speaking, the shorter a woman's leave after having a baby, the more likely she will be to suffer from postpartum mood disorders like depression and anxiety. And among many potential consequences of those disorders, suicide is the second most common cause of death in a woman's first year postpartum. Mm. Second most common cause. Like we're talking beyond, I'm guessing hemorrhaging might be or some kind of cardiac event. But think about all the other things that women could suffer from after birth. And suicide is the second leading cause of death. That is yeah. that is awful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, looking back, I definitely had undiagnosed postpartum anxiety. I didn't even know postpartum anxiety was a thing. 
Uh, I knew depression was, but not anxiety. And I felt like my heart was racing all the time and my thoughts were really rapid and constant about everything that could go wrong and everything I needed to do in my life. I could not turn it off. I mean, I couldn't remember a lot of nights where I would nurse my baby and then come back to bed and just stare at the ceiling, like yeah. unable to go back to sleep. Um, and I wish that I'd gotten something for that. I wish I had thought to tell my midwife, you know, hey, I'm having some serious racing thoughts. But, you know, our postpartum care model isn't great either because usually I have a checkup right after and then I think at six weeks, but there's not another postpartum checkup after that until you come back for your annual. So there's a huge gap in care between that six-week mark and when you would see your doctor again. So Hmm. a lot of women are probably falling through the cracks because of that. So back to Jessica Shortle's TED Talk. This is another part where she talks about the well-being of babies. She says, what are the babies? As a country, we do care about, do we care about the millions of babies born every year to working mothers? I say we don't, not until they're of working and taxpaying and military serving age. We tell them we'll see them in 18 years and getting there is kind of on them. One of the reasons I know this is that babies whose mothers have 12 or more weeks at home with them are more likely to get their vaccinations and their well checks in their first year. So those babies are more protected from deadly and disabling diseases. Wow. You know, this is a hard thing for me to talk about because I have a really personal story about paid family leave, and I've written about it in several outlets, um, including on the Good Mother Project, and it's a story that's been covered in the Washington Post. I'll be sure to link to those in the show notes. But needless to say, I'm a huge advocate for ensuring every single parent, every single caregiver doesn't have to choose between their livelihood and taking care of their families. Yeah. I just want you to know that your story of being denied parental leave um, by your employer really encouraged me to take a stand for the leave that I needed. Um, You know, you and I had a lot of conversations really early in my pregnancy and even before I got pregnant um, about how to approach the leave conversation at work. And um, you were really a champion for me to think about what it is that I want and need in the days after my baby will be born um, because you don't get that time back. And um, it was those conversations that gave me the confidence to just tell my board um, I wanted a full 12 weeks of leave. And I remember before we talked, I was kind of like, so I could ask for six and then like phase back in over the next six weeks. And I, you, I remember you telling me like, no, you need to ask for the whole 12 or maybe even more than that. So you can negotiate down to 12. Like you can always go lower, but, but ask for what it is you want and, um, you're more likely to get it. And even though like planning ahead for my leave has its challenges right now, I am so grateful that I did that because when I did, my board didn't bat an eye, which is so yeah, it's amazing. And it was so funny because I don't really know what I was so afraid of um, about why I didn't want to like ask for what I felt I deserved. I work for a feminist, like women focused organization. And I guess I thought that asking for leave time would make me look entitled or lazy or like not committed to work, like I wasn't prioritizing my job. And I think. Maybe deep down, I felt like I didn't deserve that much time mm-hmm. off, um, especially because I know so many other women don't get that time. So there's this mental struggle of like making a choice between what's best for me 
and my family, what's best for my employer, and like the guilt of feeling caught in the middle and somehow undeserving of this incredibly basic form of healthcare. And I think this is the whole problem with our country's fractured leave policies. It should not be on the shoulders of individual parents to have to ask and negotiate and sometimes even beg or risk losing their jobs for time off for childbirth and bonding with their Absolutely. kids. Absolutely. No one should have to feel the anxiety that you felt not knowing what was going to happen and have to pave the way for yourself. You know, there if there was yeah. a national paid family leave policy that covered everybody it would prevent that very thing from happening and it would be fair for everybody. Um, and it gives me a lot of, I don't know a lot, but it gives me some solace to know that sharing my story has helped someone else. You know, that's all I can do as an advocate. I don't yeah. get to go back and change how I did things, but I'm really glad that I could be that for you. Yeah. You know? I appreciate I love it you. so much. I'm getting I very emotional you. just thinking about it. I know. You know, I've been really trying to say family leave or parental leave instead of maternity leave because I want to bring parents, fathers into this conversation as well. And our country doesn't make it any easier on dads to take leave time. Mm -mm. Um, The recent four-part series on working motherhood that The Longest Shortest Time just did about family leave, I encourage everybody to listen to it. We'll link to it in the show notes, but it's a really important um, piece of journalism. It was really eye-opening for me. I think it was the fourth episode that talked about Sweden's family leave policy. So <laughs> this this just is crazy. Uh, families get paid 16 months of parental leave to split between both parents however they want. And what is what I thought was interesting is that for a long time after they passed that law, still only the moms took all the leave. Um mm. It was because of all this, like, stigma about dads taking the leave. Like, the stigma in the workplace, they even had, like, some kind of derogatory nicknames for dads who took leave time off um, to be with their their children. And so men just weren't taking the leave. So Sweden kind of saw this was happening and wanted, wanted it to be more equal. So they passed a new, like, regulation that said... Uh, they called it the dad month, dads had to take at least one month of that 16-month leave or else it was lost. Mm, so Interesting. Yeah, it was kind of a great incentive because dads knew like it would be foolish not to take the leave. So they all took at least that month and then realized, like, hey, I really like being home with my family and my, and my kid at this time. So a lot of them were taking even more than that. And then um, after a while, the stigma of that happening just kind of – Um, went away and now it's really common to see dads taking half or more than half of of uh, leave and a lot of dads quitting their work to stay home with the kids and I see this reflected in my own experience the stigma of the father taking time off for leave Um, that episode referenced a a statistic and I think I don't quite remember but I think it was um, when when a man in the office takes family leave the other men in his workplace are more like uh, are eleven percent more likely to take leave as well. So this totally happened in my husband's job. He has a male coworker who last year his wife had a baby and he took off four months of leave. Like combined, he used FMLA and combined um, some sick and some paid. He took four months off, and my husband told me about that, and I was like, "Yes, you're doing it too. Awesome! Like call him, ask him what he did, like talk, have him talk you through it." And um, because this coworker had already paved the way, 
my husband had a lot more confidence to go in and ask for the full 12 weeks of um, of leave that I'm taking. So he's got to file FMLA. Um, he's got about enough sick and PTO time to, to get about half, half of it paid. Um, so we're really, really fortunate to be able to do this. Um, yeah, that's so good. <sighs> and it's also important not just – for you to have the support, but for your family to bond as yes. this new unit. You're bringing a third person into your life, and everybody deserves time to bond yes. as a family. And especially, I think, for the partner who was not carrying yep. the pregnancy, mm-hmm. just to have that experience of bonding and time is really, really critical for the health of your relationships with each other going forward. Yeah. And I think what it really like comes down to for me is I feel incredibly grateful to be able to take three months for myself um, and for my husband to be able to do it with me. But at the same time, I'm incredibly angry that I mm-hmm. have to be grateful for this. I know that it seems like so luxurious that you get 12 whole weeks after you have a baby. Yeah. I it just this we give good lip service in our country about valuing families but the reality is that value is not at all reflected in our national policies. Mm-hmm. And we claim to be a Christian nation. And that's the thing that gets me. It, because Christian, Christian scripture offers a lot of stories about families and pregnancy. It's like we ignore them all when we're shaping our laws. I know. And the whole idea of a, a white nuclear family with the, the wife staying home and that that being the and the man going out to make the income, like where does that show up in scripture? Right, it's not a, it's not a biblical principle at all. I mean, uh-uh. families take all kinds of forms, dysfunctional forms, in the Bible. So it's a complete construction of yep. of of what the ideal family is, and it's just not the reality that we live in. And for most people of color, it's never been the reality that they've lived in. So right, we got to wise up. Um, so if we go like you were saying, to the biblical narrative, um, we're actually recording this right in the middle of Advent season. Mm-hmm. So it's the time in the church when we're waiting for the coming of Christ. And it's the only time in the liturgical calendar that I can think of that a pregnant woman is at mm-hmm. the center, or at least part of the central theme of what's happening in the church. So yeah, we're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's a pretty complex figure with some baggage, to say the least. And depending on how you choose to interpret her story, some really empowering aspects to it and some not so empowering stuff to say. So I would love to hear what your take is on Mary, especially this Advent season when you're pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) So I've always identified with Mary, I think, uh, or at the very least, I've always had a lot of compassion for her. Um, Mm. Even as a, like, I really identified with her when I was, you know, we think of her as being like 12, 13 years old when she found out she was going to be carrying the, the Messiah. And when I was around that age, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, that is, that is huge. And she was a child who was asked to carry this really huge, significant task that she was not ready for. And um, so I've always thought of her as really brave and strong. And my dad's side of the family is Catholic. Um, so I grew up with a lot of Catholic influence, even though I'm not, uh, I wasn't raised Catholic. But I was raised with um, that sort of Catholic reverence um, and a little more attention that's given to Mary than other denominations might. And so I've always really thought of her fondly. 
Um, and then last week, I read the most amazing piece by Rachel Held Evans, who we've talked about on the show before, about um, Mary's prayer uh, in Luke 1, 46 through 55. It's often called the Magnificat. In the passage before, so Mary has just felt the baby move for the first time, and she rejoices. And it's like she's finally accepted it's true, she's pregnant, she believes it. And I loved Rachel's take on the Magnificat during this troubled time that we're in right now. And I want to read a little bit from her piece, which which uh, quotes um, this piece of scripture. She says, But I'm not feeling sentimental this Advent. I'm feeling angry, restless. And so in this season, I hear Mary's Magnificat shouted, not sung, in the halls of the Capitol building. Quote, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. In the corridors of the West Wing, quote, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. In the streets of Charlottesville, quote, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Among women who have survived assault, harassment, and rape, quote, he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Among the poor, the refugees, the victims of gun violence, and the faithful ministers of the gospel who at great cost are speaking out against the false religions of nationalism and white supremacy, quote, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Rachel says, with the Magnificat, Mary not only announces a birth, she announces the inauguration of a new kingdom, one that stands in stark contrast to every other kingdom, past, present, and future, that relies on violence and exploitation to achieve greatness. With the Magnificat, Mary declares that God has indeed chosen sides, and it's not with the powerful, but with the humble. It's not with the rich, but with the poor. It's not with the occupying force, but with people on the margins. It's not with narcissistic kings, but with an unwed, unbelieved teenage girl entrusted with the holy task of birthing, nursing, and nurturing God. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> this this take on Mary, this might be blasphemous, but this take on Mary makes me think of her as a total badass, <laughs> which I am really okay with. So what about you? What do you think of Mary? My thoughts on Mary have evolved a lot over time. And I will say that I really love what Rachel Held Evans says in this piece. I think any time that we can take scripture that we've heard over and over again and make it relevant to the time and place that we're in is always a really useful exercise. Um, And framing it, if if memory serves me correctly, I think... The Magnificat language is adapted from the book of Isaiah. I'll have to double check that. But it's a it's a way of saying, like, the promises of God will be fulfilled. You know, they have not been forgotten. Um, so the, just a little side note about that text. But mm-hmm. um, it is this very prophetic moment of talking about the world kind of being turned upside down. And the powers and principalities that be will not always be in power. Yeah. You know, this is about... This is about love and compassion and humility and justice for, for those who have been oppressed. So I love that, too. My thoughts on Mary, I've only really thought about her much over the last six or seven years. And that coincided with me going into the work around maternal health. Mary was always just not 
really someone I care to think about too much. Um, and really all that comes to mind when I think about earlier thoughts of her are what we depict, how we depict her in art Mm -hmm. or in our larger culture. And she always just seemed really inaccessible to me in those paintings and things. She's very wise looking and calm and reserved in the nativity scene. She's always painted as much older than a teenage girl. Um, So our nativities are always like so clean and perfect looking. And that always bothers me because birth is really messy and it's sweaty and it's bloody and all kinds of other things that we don't associate with those sweet nativities that we display Mm -hmm. at Advent time. But I try to separate out the nativity that we see from Mary's story because those two things are not the same. Mm -hmm. What I love about Mary is she's inquisitive. When the angel Gabriel comes to her to say that she's going to carry the son of God, she goes, how is this so? (laughs) She's like, how is this? Like, explain to me how this works. Yeah. She, she wants to know more. She wants to understand. And she doesn't just passively accept this as her reality without asking a really central, important question. How did this happen? Yeah. Uh, so I love that. Um, and I also really love what happens after Mary finds out she's pregnant. And this is the focus of my chapter on Mary, or part of the focus of my chapter on Mary in my book, Women Rise Up. Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth, and for those of you who might not know or might not remember, Elizabeth experienced infertility, and she never had children, and when she was in her later years, she also miraculously conceives and eventually gives birth to John the Baptist. So we've got two family members here, both of them unexpectedly pregnant at the same time, and they spend three months together uh, and we don't really know much about that time, but I can just imagine them like providing com- companionship and mutual support to each other. And I love the idea of that. I do too. I love that. Like just the thought of hanging out with another pregnant lady for three months. Like it just sounds lovely. <laughs> like we cannot deal with our men in our life right now because <laughs> Elizabeth's husband is is not able to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens before, and I don't know. Like Mary probably just didn't want to talk to Joseph about this, so she goes to the person that she can talk she can talk to, yeah. and that's Elizabeth, her her friend and her family member. So I was going to read a little excerpt, and this is from the unedited draft. So um, bear with me; it might look a little different in the end. I said Mary doesn't have the benefit of a positive pregnancy test to confirm that Gabriel's words are true. Once the angel departs, she makes a plan to sort through all that she, all that he has told her. Mary not only needs space to come to terms with this enormous life change, she also needs companionship, and she takes the initiative to find it. She decides to go see the one person who might be able to make some sense of this. She goes to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who is now six months pregnant, has been living with a husband unable to engage in conversation. So I imagine that Mary's visit is a relief for her, too. I can picture the two of them, Elizabeth's decidedly round belly, and Mary's still flat, Mary moaning with each wave of nausea as Elizabeth scurries to whip up something bland to settle her cousin's stomach, Mary asking Elizabeth every question she has about pregnancy. When did you first feel movement? How do you deal with heartburn? Are you afraid of giving birth? Elizabeth asking Mary about her encounter with the angel. What exactly did he say to you? Do you know why my husband can't talk anymore? (laughs) While we cannot know the details of their time together, we can imagine them bonding over their shared experience. After three months, when Elizabeth is preparing to give birth, and Mary has gotten through the worst of the first trimester, they part ways. Mary has the confidence and resolve she needs to return home. I love that. 
Oh, thank you. I, I, I just love the image of that. I, actually, one of my first sermons I ever preached was about this text. Um, so we talked in episode six, Sticking Together for Resistance and Survival, about the story of Ruth and Naomi and how we are so hungry for models of female friendship in the Bible. And this story is another one that inspires me and gives me a lot of hope. Me too. I've always, lo- I've also always loved the story of Mary and Elizabeth. And one thing that I have loved about being pregnant is all the support I have for from the women in my life um, who've been there, family and friends and peers who are even pregnant right now, like right alongside with me. Mm-hmm. And nobody really knows what it's like to be pregnant, what you go through, um, unless you've experienced it. And there's something really incredible about being able to bond with other women in this way. And I feel like I have a lot to be grateful for right now. Um, and my female friendships are definitely high up on that list. So it's time to move on to our segment about what we're reading and what we're listening to. So Katie, what have you been reading? I had tried to keep it on theme. I think that'll be my goal moving forward is to try to yeah. look at stuff that's related. Because sometimes we're just like, well, there's this really cool book that I'm reading that I want to talk about. Yeah. But I wanted to get something that was related to what we were talking about today. So I wanted to lift up one of my favorite parenting and life blogs, Offbeat Home and Life. Did you ever read Offbeat Brides when you were planning your wedding? I did. And I had no idea they had uh, this new like adaptation of it. I love it. Yeah, I loved it too. Uh, they're creative ideas for all kinds of different ceremonies. So they started as an offshoot of that, Offbeat Mamas in 2009. Mm-hmm. Then they became Offbeat Families in 2012. And then they merged to become Offbeat Home and Life in 2015. So you might wonder, why did they shift away from the family framework? And this is what they say on their site, which I absolutely love as a parent. They said, we believe that while children change your life forever, being around kids doesn't necessitate abandoning your identity. So to that, Mm -hmm. I say amen. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We believe in supporting and inspiring parents and caregivers who are moving beyond mainstream visions of parenting. We welcome anyone who's interested in families, whether you're pre-parent pre-parental, in the process of becoming a parent or choosing to live child-free. That's cool. Yeah, very inclusive platform. And there are a lot of helpful fo- posts for people, you know, no matter where they are in their parenting journey. There's a recent one uh, around haircuts called How Do I Discuss Body Autonomy Regarding Children's Haircuts? Interesting. Yeah, like, can you force your child to get a haircut or not? Uh, I also thought of you when I read one about how not to talk to pregnant women about their bodies. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she she says almost the exact same thing. She says, one of the worst parts of being pregnant is that your body becomes a conversation piece. Uh-huh. It has been hard enough to deal with the lack of control of my changing body, but it's been difficult to field constant comments from people who want to talk about how my body looks to the point that I actually am dreading my own baby shower. Oh, yes. There will be no measuring of my belly oh, at no. my baby shower. Okay, no, so quick story you. about that. I I did one of those at someone else's shower, and I was the only one who got it close to the woman's belly. And you know <laughs> what I did? I just put it around my waist, and I was like, ah. I was like, it just looks like a little bit bigger than mine. And I was the closest That's perfect. one. So little life hack. If you're forced to do that, just measure your own waist and then add a little bit. The, I the, love it. The woman will be... <laughs> flattered regardless of if it's too small she'll be glad that you think that she's smaller than she is I promise you uh, so there's a, gr- a lot of good content on there and we'll be sure to link to offbeat home and life in our resources 
resource section on the show notes. I've been very tongue-tied today. I don't know why. I think I'm feeling like very emotional about this. So <laughs> just trying to get through it. <laughs> yes. And we've been doing this for almost a year now, too. I know. Like, it's just so crazy. It is. Wild. So what have you been listening to these days, Ashley? And I will take a turn so, to be quiet. Uh, I, the, the podcast that would be on theme for today was the uh, Longest Shortest Time which uh, I already talked about earlier. Um, so definitely check that out. But I also have a new podcast um, that I want to tell people about called The Fairer Sense. It's hosted by Tanya Hester and Cara Perez, who are two bloggers slash writers in the world of personal finance. And their tagline is Rad Women, Real Money Stories. And their show is a lot like ours. They're long distance friends. And much like we explore feminism and faith, they explore feminism and money. They have also covered some similar topics like emotional labor, women, and ambition. Um, they even talk about the word bossy in one of their episodes. Um, and what I love about this podcast is it's not the usual personal finance stuff that most of us are used to, like, you know, stop drinking so many lattes and you'll get out of debt or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's not hosted by a couple of white dude bros, <laughs> like <laughs> so many <laughs> personal finance um podcasts and like blogs are written by um folks with a real limited uh experience range of experience so um what i love about these ladies is they're taking on real things like the wage gap and privilege and managing household finances with a spouse or partner and how complicated that can be so i really love them i highly recommend their podcast one disclaimer Their style is pretty fun and relaxed, so you might hear a little more profanity and maybe even some talk about boobs. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things. (laughs) Just know that going in. So check out The Fairer Sense wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I started listening to one of their episodes yesterday, and that was my first thought was, we are so demure compared to these ladies. I know, like, I feel weird whenever we're like, well, like earlier, I called Mary a badass, and I'm like, oh, I, know. I don't know if that's okay. <laughs> but Which, I mean, to keep it real, Ashley and I are so not demure in real life. I don't know, it's no. just this persona that we bring to Kindred's podcast. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Send us well, some feedback about that. If you don't like that, we can certainly think about, like, making it a little bit more PG-13. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I've definitely had folks say to me that Profanity and off-color jokes can be a barrier for them for sharing a a podcast mm. or a blog or something. Like, I would love to share this, except y'all cuss so much, and my yeah. mom wouldn't like that. And, you know, I want this to be as accessible as possible to the widest audience um, that would want, you know, that would want be interested in it. And so I don't want to do things that are going to turn folks off for something that's really, like, not necessary. It's kind of the way I look at it. Um, so... That's sort of my thought on that. But yeah, if y'all have other opinions, we'd definitely love to hear that too. Um, more cursing, please. <laughs> more. <laughs> I, we would be happy to oblige. <laughs> you can tell I have a three-year-old because I have really learned to not curse so much. <laughs> I'm trying. Or I can turn it off and on better than I could before. I'm a much more mindful of my language. And when we have child-free people at our house, I'm like, oh my gosh, can you please stop? saying the f word our child is going to start repeating that (laughs) yep (laughs) it's going to happen oh my goodness okay so um so katie you are up for this episode's kindreds of the moment yes this week's kindreds of the moment is you all our listeners i know that that sounds cheesy but we really mean it we are so grateful for each and every single one of you who's taken the time to listen to our podcast 
or given us feedback or encouraged us and shared the podcast with your friends and and network, we know that there are so many podcasts out there. So the fact that you would take the time to listen to ours is just such a huge gift. Uh, And I looked, as of today, we have over 1,200 listens on our podcast so far, which is incredible. It's awesome. Yeah. Who would have thought when we started this that so many people would want to listen to what we have to say? (laughs) Uh, So thank you to all of you, our kindreds of the moment. And one more reminder, please do us a solid and leave us a review on iTunes. We would be so grateful. So grateful. So that does it for our episodes for 2017. We have loved having you along for our first 12 episodes, and we're excited to bring you brand new content in 2018. We will be taking the month of January off from releasing new episodes, but that's because we're working on some new projects that we're going to be launching toward the end of January. So be on the lookout for a mini announcement from us mid-January. And in the meantime, take good care of yourselves and each other. So Katie, I will talk to you in 2018. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 